0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio.
1: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of your favorite podcast, the Canadian Real Estate Investor. My name is Nick Hill. I'm a mortgage agent and a real estate investor and a podcast host. And I am joined today by another real estate investor, my dear co-host and realtor extraordinaire, Daniel Foch.
0: Dan, how you doing, buddy? I am good. I am really excited to be putting together this episode. This is a very meaty episode. Ooh. It's thick. It is and
1: that's that's thick with like three C's. But you know what? It's bulking season, right? Like we're we're in November, middle November here. So
0: bulk up that real estate knowledge now. Exactly.
1: Why don't you? We don't really have a ton of time to do our little back and forth here because we've got so much to discuss. So why don't you just tell everyone immediately what we're going to be talking about today, and then we'll dive right in.
0: Yeah. So today's episode is about mortgages and a little bit about other exposure you can get to real estate. So we're going to be talking primarily about mortgage penalties. But also, whether or not buying real estate is even the best real estate investment you can make today. And that sounds a little bit weird. So <laughs> to explain it a little bit better, we're going to be talking about different types of indirect real estate investments like REITs, MIX, and real estate brokerage stocks very, very loosely or, or just going to kind of introduce a couple of those topics and and why we might be exploring them over the next little bit. And then we're going to be talking about mortgage lenders and and more specifically, one mortgage lender in particular called ROMspin. So before we get into that, there is this news that just came out that we wanted to cover, and it'll kind of create some context around the other stuff we're going to talk about in the episode. So if you go online and type in ROMspin.com, it'll bring you to a nice, refined looking website. And if you click one step further on the about us, it'll read as follows. Nick, a track record that withstands
1: market cycles. That's a strong title. I like that. Rumsman has become one of Canada's largest non-bank commercial industrial mortgage lenders. Our investment manager's goal is to provide simplified solutions that deliver stable, consistent risk-adjusted cash returns to investors through our entrepreneurial yet diligent approach to real estate investing. As lenders, we offer borrowers timely and secure capital deployment, the capacity to get on board with innovative projects overlooked by traditional lenders and flexible value-added guidance. Our investors include high net worth individuals, foundations, endowments, and pension plans. Serving our clients is a privilege that we have earned. As a problem solving experts with an entrepreneurial approach, solutions focus, and proven skill set, we are uniquely structured to create value for our investors and borrowers. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Then they've got a nice little graphic under Romsman facts and figures: three point two billion AUM, which is assets under management. 25 consecutive positive return years of positive net returns for investors between 3.7 and 11.1%, and a 7.4% net return, average annualized return to investors over a 10 year period. Now, Robson has been in the game since the 1950s and overall have had a pretty good track record. So, why are we talking about them now? And why did they make the news? Well, we're going to take a look at the Bloomberg article that that kind of caught our attention. But before we do that, Dan, why don't you tell us a bit about the different types of lenders because obviously Romspen is, is not our, your traditional big six bank or something like that. So Dan, give us a breakdown of some of the lender and lender types.
0: Yeah. So there's a handful of different types of lenders in Canada. We have obviously the bank lenders, which are regulated by the Bank Act and they have to meet what are called... Basel 3 requirements which is sort of this global set of requirements for globally significant financial institutions so that they don't implode the global financial system as we saw other mortgage lenders doing in the past you know in recent history the so big 6 banks in in Canada your RBC TD CIBC BMO National Bank etc then you get to credit unions you know the, the largest of which might be uh, Meridian as an example and then and so this is outside of banks so your credit unions and other non-bank financial institutions or NBFIs some of which are are absolutely massive after that, you would have life LifeCo's or life insurance companies and as part of their book of business to distribute and earn a, a yield on the investments or on the capital that they're collecting from their insurance policies, they're lending out, monies or lending out mortgages because it's a great way to earn that yield in historically safe exposure. So some examples would be Great West Life Insurance and, and a lot of our listeners might have actually heard of these companies because maybe they are providing insurance to them or or in, in some of the cases, even pension funds who are providing pensions to some of the listeners, you probably aren't borrowing from a lot of these entities unless you're sort of in a greater scale. But GWL, so Great Great West Life Co., Desjardins, Manulife, Sun Life. Desjardins, actually, it would be a, maybe one that some people would, would have interacted with. They're not uncommon on the mortgage side. And they actually have been known to be buying quite a few credit unions lately as well to get greater exposure to to the mortgage book. The other one, the next one would sort of be pension funds that pension funds, I mean, look, they take money for you as an employee, then they invest it and they they're supposed to earn a yield. They try typically try to avoid risk. So they're playing more in the mortgage backed securities space or through private mix like ROM been mentioned before. Yeah. Before we move on from the from the pension funds, so Ontario
1: Teachers Pension Plan, one of the biggest pension funds in the world, major financial player. This is definitely not a podcast about cryptocurrency. I don't really know anything about cryptocurrency. I lost all my Bitcoin in a gambling incident in a Spanish casino years ago. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell anybody that one. <laughs> That's a whole different story. Okay. FTX, I've just been seeing this all over the place. And the reason I bring it up is Ontario Teachers Pension Plan invested- a lot of money in ftx and if you haven't seen ftx recently it was a cryptocurrency exchange platform similar to like binance and coinbase i believe and they're they just had like the craziest thing happen to them i have a chart in front of me that says their series a was valued at 1.2 billion series b 18 billion series b 125 billion series c 32 billion dollars and that was less than 2 years. That whole valuation happened in about a year and a half. Yesterday, Dan, they went to $1. How the
0: hell does that happen? I think leverage is how that happens, to be honest with you. I mean, the only way that you can crumble your the value of something so quickly is through excessive leverage. I was actually in a room with a very very smart real estate developer earlier this week and he said, you know, like if you invest in real estate all cash, it, you're always going to be okay in the fullness of time. Like real estate isn't an unsafe investment at all. Leverage is what makes real estate an unsafe investment and in giving people access to leverage and and look, we're we're seeing that with things like that. You're seeing it with I watching the the Theranos TV show right now, the dropout, I think it's called. I mean, people who have when you have creditors and you got burn rate and you got debt to pay, I mean, even seeing Elon Musk liquidating some of his, you know, his Tesla shares right now, mm-hmm. credit catches up with you. Liabilities hurt. And and so the easiest way to plummet the value of stuff. And this is what we're seeing happening right now in real time. ROM spent obviously not being a levered up institution, but a provider of leverage starting to kind of choke out that leverage stream to to de-risk. And we're gonna to get to that through this Bloomberg article. But let me finish up here. So Ontario's teachers pension plan would be a great example of the FTX thing. And and they'll they try and invest money in a broad bunch of different categories to to de risk and diversify. So they actually bought home equity bank, which is Canada's largest provider of reverse mortgages, which is Primarily mortgages designed for people who are fifty five plus who have a bunch of wealth tied up in their home. Frees up some of that capital. Yeah, and, and it comes out in consistent monthly payments. So it's basically like your house paying you a mortgage. Mm-hmm. So just an example there, like that you know, pension funds, because they have so much capital, they need they need really big whale moves to move the needle. You gotta think like Buffett size. Buffett when he wanted exposure to Canadian real estate, he was basically like buying Brookfield, you know, <laughs> like an or or buying Royal LePage as an example. <laughs> I guess the next piece on the puzzle here is private funds, so sort of like your mix mortgage investment funds, mortgage administration companies, broadly called MIEs or mortgage investment entities. First National might be maybe the best, the most notable one. Their parent company of uh, so First National Financial Corporation, which is as a lender, First National Financial LP. They're based in Toronto, one of the top three market shares in the mortgage broker distribution channel, and they're actually Canada's largest non-bank lender. And they're technically a mix, they're publicly traded as well. And they originate and service both residential and commercial mortgages. I actually just took a mortgage from First Nat, and I always like call them a B lender because they're like not a bank, right? But you guys are all like everybody in the broker space, is like no, they're an A, right? And they are they're A priced.
1: They're an A, yeah. And and you know what? They are they're way more competitive than than some of the big banks sometimes
0: because they focus on mortgages. That's their business. Yeah, yeah, and so that's where when you hear monoline lenders, these are people who only lend in that space. Exactly. So, just to, for a little bit of context for mix, because spend is sort of playing in that that space. A mix was first seen in 1973, thanks to the Residential Mortgage Financing Act. Instead of mortgages through banks, these private mortgages basically were offered through independent corporations that were provincially registered and licensed. Mix really took off after 2007, basically when mortgage-backed securities got regulated heavily due to the global financial crisis in the US. So their mortgage-backed securities and mix are basically pooled investments. So an investor or a bunch of investors put money in with a MEC or an MBS and their money is invested into multiple mortgages to better diversify their investments, spread out that risk across a, a bunch of different borrowers. Because mix or the lending of mortgage-backed security handles the mortgages, the investor doesn't really need any knowledge. So they can kind of just put the capital in. And that's why it's good for pension funds or life codes to get into these spaces, or even regular investors who just want to get a yield because they don't want to have to underwrite deals or whatever it is. So that company specializes in that. They're both advantageous to the layperson because they can be held in registered accounts and are considered qualified investments under Canadian Income Tax Act. So you could invest in them through a TFSA or RRSP as an example. MBSs are created From mortgages lent out by major banks, and they kind of sell them. They're pooled. And now, because of what happened in the global financial crisis, they have to actually be regulated or qualify under the National Housing Act and the Canadian Mortgage Bond programs. And then, sort of after that, after the MIC, which is sort of like large private funds, let's call it, then there's basically direct private lending. And that's where you're going to see your most expensive capital, probably your most lenient capital, but also your highest risk capital. And as we're learning right now, to get back to spend in this Bloomberg article, there's a correlation between risk and return. You know, spend touts a 7.4 percent return on that that website there. So, you want to take a quick break and then we'll jump into that Bloomberg article. Okay, mortgage fund in Canada halts
1: payout amid liquidity crunch. And that's this is the Bloomberg article we've been talking about. Here we go. The move underscores the growing stress in the nation's real estate market as sharp rise in interest rates changes the economics of commercial projects and disrupts the housing market. The firm, Romsben, which is backed by New York based TIG Advisors, is an established specialty manager of private mortgage funds, providing pre development, construction, and other loans for commercial and residential projects. It's among the largest players in the Canadian business sector. The Romspen Mortgage Investment Fund has $2.8 billion, or U.S. $2.1 billion, invested in 134 mortgages at the end of June. About evenly divided between Canada and U.S. projects, managers are now working to accelerate the sale of some of these assets to free up some cash. Private lending funds gained popularity among investors, hunger for yield during the area of rock-bottom interest rates. Remember that, Dan? That wasn't so long ago. (laughs) It was not. But mortgage finance vehicles have had a difficult year as rates increase. The rise in borrowing costs is also hurting developers as they seek capital to build new projects or refinance existing ones. So this is all starting to sound familiar as we've seen as we've spoken about numerous times in the construction sector and, and projects getting put on hold because developers can't afford to build them. This is directly some direct quotes here from the latter part of the article. To preserve liquidity, the firm created a runoff pool for investors who want to get their money out as assets are sold. But that didn't dampen redemption requests, according to the letter, which said the firm have to take further measures if conditions worsen. Romson told investors it still outperformed other asset classes this year with an 8.2% trailing one-year return as of June 30th. And according to the website, they are still confident that we will manage through this challenging phase and achieve reasonable long-term results for investors as we have done in the past over our 50-year history. When developers can't catch up on their payments, Romson forecloses and deploys team to continue work on projects before selling them. That's really interesting. Because it lends at a 65% LTV, 65% loan to value. Just a reminder, the standard, let's say you go to go, you're going to go buy a duplex, that's 20% down. So they are 65% LTV. It's standard for retail investors, usually about 80%. The market would have to move about another 30% for us to see any major material losses on our book. Dan, what does this mean? Let's let's unpack this. Why is Rhompson the first of many here? Why is this making news?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that they're they're sort of dismissing that there are two ways that they can have material losses on their book. Number one, you can lose yield. Number two, you can lose principal. right? So, when she says the market would have to move about 30% for us to see any material loss on our book, we're almost there already. You said another 30%, but the quote is actually about 30%. So, let's just look at their their book of business. So from that article, it shows the markets in which they have exposure to. So it says 22% other US markets, 22% Ontario, 20% California, 14% British Columbia, 13% other Canada, and 9% Texas. So if you're a real estate investor, put aside the mortgage lender side of things. But if you're a real estate investor and you have exposure to all of those markets primarily, is that what you would consider diversified book necessarily? I mean, BC is down, let's say 14% right now at the median. Ontario house prices are down. That's 22% of their book. Texas is 9% of their book. We know prices are down in Texas. You're hearing a lot of sell-offs happening there. California prices are down 8.8% or something like that. Not as bad as a lot of the other places, but these aren't necessarily your blue chip markets. They are when the tide is going up. you know, And you hear that, that quote, there's two different quotes in the investing world about Tides, right? So there's, and I like to blend them together because it's awesome right now. The rising tide lifts all boats. And we saw that happen for a long period of time as interest rates were going down. You could, everybody was a genius, everybody was an amazing investor. Now, when that same tide stops rising and goes back out to the ocean, you get to find out who's swimming naked. I think that's the Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett one, right? Yeah,
1: that's close enough. But I, you know, I guess that does that mean we're just living in a in a nudist colony at this point?
0: <laughs> it honestly does kind of feel. I mean, we're starting to see that the risks happening with this with this leverage stuff, and the markets getting illiquid. Like it says that they're trying to offload these assets. Well, like they're selling mortgages out into out into the world right now, and they're and the mortgages are declining in return and increasing in risk at the same time. So. The willingness to pay for all of those mortgages out there that they're trying to sell off is not exceptionally good. So I I mentioned prices being down, which is their security. so So their security is decreasing. On the same token, there's not a necessarily diversified economy that they of job payers that are paying those mortgages. When you look at those four different areas where they have the heaviest exposure to, again, BC, Texas, Ontario, and California. Where are we seeing? And you're starting to hear this. Bloomberg even did an article about it: white collar recession, and the idea that because we we mentioned this in our most recent episode and and in a couple of the, the recent ones about jobs and the w- the ability for people to pay as landlords, you got to be thinking as a landlord, you're very much like a mortgage lender. What you care about is the, the occupier of the homes' ability to pay for the mortgage or the ability to pay for the rent. And now we're seeing that some of these lenders who have exposure to traditionally. Amazing mortgage payers. When you're starting to hear that Facebook just laid off 11% of its employees, and Toronto is a big tech city, BC has a, a big tech market, California, obviously the biggest tech market in the world. There are a lot of tech jobs moving to Texas. So jobs matter too. The ability for people to pay their mortgages matters too, especially when we have, you know, we think that we have high household savings in Canada, but a lot of that was because everybody's equity position in their home was increasing. So you know, talking about this, Rom's been talking there seven point four percent. We know that there's a bigger risk means a higher return. What I wanted to do was talk about alternative investing to get real estate exposure because seven point four percent gives us a really good benchmark of like okay, can I get a 7.4% cap rate if I'm direct investing or 12% or, or can I get a cash cash on cash return that's higher than 7.4%? Probably it's not that hard. But there's a couple of different opportunities that I saw in the market right now. And I've been having this conversation a lot because the question is, is direct investing in real estate even the best way to get exposure to real estate right now? And we're having Bridget and Alyssa speaking at our events in Calgary, and they're sort of out of scope for direct real estate investing the point is they are in scope for personal finance and getting exposure to real estate beyond direct investing. And I want to start having that conversation. So you look at, let's, I'm going to give you a a bag of stocks that have exposure to real estate in Canada. Bridgemark, which is Royal LePage basically, and and they're down 24% since the peak and they have over a 10% dividend right now. Stock ticker is BRE. Real Brokerage Inc., which is basically they they're kind of like EXP. They like pay their realtors with stocks. They're like selling retirement to realtors, sort of. Kind of like one of those multi level marketing real estate brokerages. They're down sixty one percent since peak. No dividend. Allied Re. This is where it really gets interesting from my perspective. AP.UN. Nick. You you know you and I like love a company like this. They own like a bunch of really really sexy assets in a lot of Canadian cities. Yeah, it's all like
1: all brick and beam stuff. It's it's really cool. Allied's oh, a great company, but yeah
0: down a little bit, I see. Well, their, their valuations down 46% since peak, but their dividend right now is at 6.75%. And this is where I want to contextualize this because Allied would probably own the sexiest office space in a city like Toronto. And I'm just going to use Toronto because they own a lot there and it'll create a good context here. If you wanted to buy class A office space in Toronto, the cap rates at which you would be doing that would be 45 to 5.5% right now. Yet the dividend of this company who owns a bunch of that is at 6.75%. So you're getting close to the point where it almost makes more sense for a REIT to buy their own stock back rather than buy more real estate. And so when you start to see a point like that, we're at this inflection point. And we're going to talk about this a lot more in an episode that we're going to do with the Canadian Investor Podcast, our pod fathers, really, really exhaustively exploring REITs as exposure to real estate and what's happening in the real estate space beyond direct investing. But let's use another example here. Cap REIT, which is stock ticker CAR.UN, down 30% since peak. Dividend is at 3.37%. Multifamily cap rates in Toronto are 3 to 3.75%. So even for them, and that's a much more conservative asset class, it almost makes more sense for them to buy their stock back than buy more real estate. The yield is better. So we're at the point here where direct investing in real estate may not actually be the best real estate investment on a yield basis that you can make right now. The only difference is that it's not levered. So the big advantage with direct investing is you can get a mortgage, you're only putting 20% down or whatever. Whereas, you know, so if you have 100K, you can get a $500,000 value in real estate rather than $100,000 worth of REIT stock or mortgage fund equity, et cetera.
1: Yeah, totally, and and just to clarify, when you say direct investing, Dan, just means again taking that hundred thousand dollars and going and buying a duplex or triplex or single family home or whatever yourself. That's direct investing versus taking that cash and going and putting it into a company that holds and manages real estate, such as a REIT or a Mic et cetera. Yeah, I think honestly, man, like this this deserves its own episode. So let's let's leave it there for now and get into what we're going to be talking about for the rest of this episode, which is breaking your mortgage. Now, as a mortgage agent, I get this question a lot, and I've been getting it a hell of a lot more than I used to recently. So it's been a tough year for variable rate mortgage holders. We know we both have several of them. So if you decide to end your mortgage before the prescribed term, you are, quote unquote, breaking your mortgage contract. Right? So, for example, if you are three years into a five-year fixed rate, and you find out that lender is offering a significantly lower interest rate, here's a hint: that's not the case right now. <laughs> but let's say you you see that, then inquire about the possibility to break your mortgage and go with that new discounted rate. Or if you're in a variable rate and you've been riding this new hiking cycle and you can't handle it anymore, you may be looking for a way out, and that way out might be moving into a fix. But be aware. Deciding to break your mortgage before the mortgage term ends is usually associated, not usually, always associated with penalties. Now, before we get into some of the bulk of stuff and we're going to talk about which types of mortgages have which types of penalties, I wanted to shed some light and and give a a couple cool little um, statistics here that I, I got from a very intelligent gentleman named Dustin Woodhouse who is a top producing mortgage agent. The guy closed like 2,000 deals. He's a published author. I think he's got two bestsellers. And he's now gone corporate. And he's the president of Mortgage Architects, a major player in the mortgage space in Canada. So he posed a question that he himself said he was shocked with the number. How many people, and Dan, I would ask you this, but we're looking at the same notes, so you already know. <laughs> How many people are making the conversion from you know their adjustable variable to a fixed? When I first heard that question, I was like, okay, it's gotta be just based off my personal experience. It's gotta be like 50%. The amount of conversations I'm hearing, the amount of stuff in the media, it's gotta be 50%. Do you wanna take a guess? Just pretend you didn't see the note.
0: <laughs> I think I get, you asked me this like when you were writing these notes like last week, and I didn't I guess it like bang on. I was like, yeah, I think I said five to ten percent. So it's
1: five to six percent of people are locking in their mortgages, which means that like ninety five, ninety four to ninety five percent of variable rate mortgage holders are just holding on, right? They're they're gonna they're gonna hold on through this cycle. So we've talked about this before in some of our other mortgage focused episodes that the five year fixed is the most popular product in Canada and has been for a long time. Well. I don't think it's any coincidence that the five-year fixed is also the most profitable product for a bank to carry. And the bank's mandate is to really serve and protect shareholders. Yeah, the, you know, the banks are not our friends. They're financial lending institutions that answer to shareholders. The average about nine times larger prepayment penalties when you break that five-year fix. So guess what? The bank loves that. And six out of 10 Canadians will break their mortgage in an average of 33 months and trigger a penalty. So that's 60%. Now we'll get into why that happens because Canadians like to move around a lot. But before we do that, Dan, tell me about some of the different types of
0: mortgages we're going to look at. Yeah, so we are going to talk about open versus closed mortgages and conventional versus collateral charges. So one of the the primary advantages to a variable is a lot of the times they're open. So they have a, a prepayment penalty that is not as severe as the fixed ones. Because in the severe, sorry, in the fixed space, you're stuck in a rate. There's a, a lot of mechanism behind the scenes, but they they, you know, talking about those mortgage-backed securities and the bonding systems often have to kind of create some relatively complex financial instruments to package these and send them out. So there are costs associated with them getting rid of like taking those mortgages off their books. It's not just that they want to screw you. They do kind of also want to screw you, but <laughs> they, or monetize you, let's say, because they they don't care about you. They care about their shareholders, like Nick said. Capitalism, baby. Yeah, it's capitalism. An open mortgage allows you to pay off as much of your debt as you wish whenever you want without being charged a prepayment penalty, or it's a much smaller prepayment penalty. Like this option allows for flexibility, but interest rates are usually higher in open mortgages. Closed mortgages have a set term and fixed conditions with a closed mortgage, you may be able to make some prepayments each year without charge. And so these are called prepayment privileges. And for agreeing to keep the mortgage for the full term, you might get a more favorable interest rate. In conventional versus collateral charge mortgages, a conventional mortgage means that your lender registers your mortgage for the actual amount of a mortgage loan, the amount that you borrow. Collateral charge means that they'll register a little bit more behind in case you want to borrow more or they want to protect themselves from you registering a B. Or another mortgage behind their mortgage for a extended loan to value. If you have a closed mortgage and you decide to break your mortgage contract before the end of the term, it's important to understand that you may be charged a prepayment charge that compensates the lender for the costs it incurs to reinvest the funds. That's right. The lenders don't hold onto your money. The second they get it, they invest it elsewhere to make a return. So like what I was mentioning, these bonding systems, I guess they have costs as well, right? And again, Capitalism baby. So there are a few different reasons why you
1: would want to break your mortgage or why you're wondering why. Usually the first and outside of this crazy rate hiking cycle that we're in is you want to sell your home and moving Canadians move a lot. Canadians move five to six times in their lifetime and that's from the Canadian Association of Movers. So you better take their word on it. They know. And homeowners, this is crazy. Homeowners will spend approximately hundred and eighty thousand dollars on real estate commissions alone on a typical four to five moves, prop, four to five move in different properties within a sixty year period. Hundred eighty grand in real estate commissions alone. So, moving, obviously, that's the first reason anyone's looking to break their mortgage. Maybe you want to renegotiate your mortgage and take advantage of lower rates. That's what we saw a lot of people do a few years ago. What we're seeing a lot of people do now. Is you're watching rates rise and you're considering locking in to a rate that you don't love, but you know, you can afford and you know that, you know, we're probably going to see another rate hike in December. We might see another one or two, even in Q1 and Q2 of next year, and you want to stop the bleeding. So you might jump into a one year or two year fixed. And then the third would be, you have an opportunity to pay off your mortgage in
0: full before the term ends. Those are the most common reasons. It's funny because we're actually getting to the point where the opposite phenomena is happening, where the the variable is actually flipped the fixed in a lot of cases. Even like if people were in the prime minus sixty five bips, maybe you guys were writing last year, TD's prime is like six point one percent or something. So you're actually seeing these variable rates cost more than a fix. So no matter what, like regardless of what advice or decisions you made this time last year, if you're assuming that your variable is going to stay where it is. It's a financially prudent thing to do to cancel that and get into the fixed because the fixed rate is cheaper right now if you're getting into it. And so we're seeing a lot of people, well, at least talking about it. I guess it's only 5% of people actually doing it. A lot of talk, but a lot of people asking whether or not it makes sense to, to get into that fixed. The problem is, you know, people don't want to risk the potential loss and upside if rates start coming back down because you're hearing a lot about a pivot and whatever. And it's actually funny because you hear these like the, a lot of people like in the capitalism conspiracy stuff, they're like... Well, yeah, like the banks right now, they make way more money on the fix. So what they're doing is like the variables are up, and they're making keeping the fix compelling so that they want a bunch. And this is a conspiracy, by the way. I'm not saying that this is what get I get the about. Yeah. guys. This is like I'm just reading like kind of reiterating some of the funny stuff that I've heard. But people are like, you know, the, the banks want to lock everybody into fixed rates, and then rates are going to drop, and they're going to have like this huge spread because they're reinvesting that money out. Anyway, I don't necessarily think that's exactly how it's going to happen, but. That's some of the commentary that you're seeing in the market right now. Anyway, information about your prepayment, about the cost of your prepayment is outlined in your mortgage agreement and is typically the greater of three months interest on what you still owe or the interest rate differential or the IRD. And the IRD is basically based on your remaining mortgage balance and the difference between the interest rate on your mortgage contract and the rate at which the lending institution can re-lend the money for at the same or at the remaining term of your mortgage. So basically, you owe them the difference between today's interest rate and the interest rate that you sign your contract at. Totally. So I get this
1: question a lot: how much will it cost to break my mortgage? Well, this depends, as there are many different costs associated with breaking a mortgage, and each lender is a bit different. The most significant cost you'll incur is that prepayment penalty, depending on your lender that prepayment penalty can differ, but I'd highly recommend you know speaking to whoever you did your mortgage with, whether it's a bank or a broker, get them on the phone. The one way you can avoid these penalties is by doing something called porting your mortgage. So Dan, what, what is porting your mortgage and, and why does it kind of save you a little bit there?
0: Yeah. So you could port or I guess you could transfer your mortgage as well. That would be one other way, but it's an extremely Difficult process. Like, we're actually seeing people on MLS like advertising that the mortgage is for sale with the house. And you saw this a lot in like the 90s when rates went up like crazy. People are trying to sell the mortgage. But then, you know, I'm getting comments from professionals in the real estate space saying, no, like, they're in the mortgage space, especially saying, no, like, that's the bank is highly unlikely to approve. Why would they approve that when they know? (laughs) Buy my million dollar house with my fixed 2%. Well, guess what? Conditional on the bank approving that. And the bank's just going to be like, no, no.
1: <laughs> exactly. Guess what? None of the banks are, yeah. Sorry, that 2 percent's now 6 So yeah. you don't get to keep it.
0: Yeah. So anyway, I just found that was kind of interesting. But like there was a vehicle in which people were selling mortgages with homes a lot in the 90s. It was very, very common. But anyway, the other alternative is porting, taking it, portaging, right? Remember we we're talking about like the Latin words mm. or Latin roots of stuff? Yes. Damn it. We missed a Latin word opportunity here. <laughs> it's portable. Well, we're getting to it. So. So, it's, you know, porting allows you to take, to keep the same mortgage when switching homes. So, you can avoid mortgage breaking penalties by porting. There is, I think, a bit of a fee for it. But if you move into a more expensive home, you'll likely need to increase that mortgage amount or get another mortgage on top of it or second facility, second mortgage. Porting is best if your current rate is lower than the rate of getting your new mortgage or if you have, if you had to like incur huge penalties to cancel that mortgage and, go buy a new place, but it really only works if you're buying another real estate asset as you're selling. So for people who are buying and selling or moving within the market or reallocating capital from one investment to another, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense for everyone. Totally. So
1: let's look at, I'm going to talk about the three month interest. Daniel, why don't you take IRD? Three month interest is the most common for breaking a variable rate mortgage contract. It's it's three months of interest applied to the remaining principal of your mortgage that is currently at the set rate. So this also applies to the fixed mortgage. So pretty simple calculation. There's a ton of resources online to go and help you figure this out. If you want to do a rough calculation before going to speak to your mortgage agent or your bank or Dan or myself, go to wowa.ca or ratehub.ca and they both have pretty accurate, not down to the detail, but pretty accurate prepayment or breaking your mortgage penalty cost that you can just plug your mortgage details in there and figure it out. The lesser common of the two is the interest rate differential. Dan, why don't you give us a quick explanation of,
0: of that? Yeah. So this is a little bit more complicated. It applies for fixed rate mortgages and it does end up being pretty common because it's usually higher than that three months of interest that we just or that we just calculated. Maybe not like today it would be, but if you were getting a mortgage five years ago and rates were going down, then you're going to get hit with that three months because the rate's actually lower. So the interest rate differential would be negative in that case. But today interest rates have gone up. So the differential is positive. So the banks want you to settle that difference of that money that you would owe them because they're, they're making the assumption that you're going out to go get a better rate, right? So the first amount of interest owing is calculated at the non-discounted rate you originally signed your agreement at. So that was the the three months interest. Then it is subtracted by the amount of interest owing calculated at the closest posted rate your lender has at the current moment for the amount of time that is left on your agreement. So if you have two years left, they'll use a two-year mortgage rate. If you If you have two years left on your five-year rate, so they'll basically use a two-year mortgage rate to calculate the interest that you owe them on the remaining two years of your mortgage. It is a bit confusing, and they they want it to be confusing. I think, like, of course. So let's try and make it a little bit easier to understand by breaking it down into a scenario. Into a scenario, not a scenario. <laughs> That's the Latin. Ah, there we go. <laughs> you have a five-year fixed mortgage rate with a current interest rate of three point two five percent. Of those five years, you have three years left and your agreement with a current principal value of 400000 left over. You decided to break your mortgage contract and so this is how the IRD is calculated on that. So first, the lender will get the non-discounted rate that was posted the day
1: you signed your mortgage agreement and that's two years ago in this scenario scenario, sorry. So you may be paying 3.25%, but the actual rate was 4% on that day, which means you get a discount of 0.75. Next, the lender will see that you have three years left on your original agreement or contract, and will find a similar product that they have currently right now to cover the remainder of that five-year term, that being a three-year
0: fixed rate mortgage. So let's say that's at a rate of two point seven five percent. So finally the lender takes the difference of rates, so four percent and two point seven five percent. So zero point four minus zero point two seven five equals 0.125. 0125 sorry. It divides that by the total of by twelve to get the monthly interest rate. So your kind of your effective annual rate is what they would call that. Then they multiply that monthly interest rate value by thirty six months, which is three years that you have outstanding remaining on your mortgage. Then they multiply this amount by the $400,000 in principle that you owe, basically to get how much more interest you have to pay to get out of the mortgage. And in this case, the math checks out to being about 15000 as a prepayment penalty.
1: Those are the two main Or sorry, those are the two main penalties that you'll face if and when you do decide to break your mortgage. We've kind of gone over a lot here, Dan. We've we've gone over. I mean, outside of the Romspin stuff, we've we've gone over a lot in breaking your mortgage. You know, some of the interesting stats that only five to six percent of people are actually making that jump, and that you know, a ton of Canadians move, and sixty percent of Canadians will break their mortgage at some point and incur a penalty. So let's have a quick kind of wrap up discussion as to why someone would break their mortgage and what it means for not only just investors, but for homeowners in this situation. Do you want to start us off and then I'll kind of finish it up with some my final
0: thoughts? Yeah, I think the only scenario in which you should be, unless you're getting maybe bad advice or incomplete advice, the only scenario in which you should actually be breaking like and not, because I think the most common reason that people stop or pause their mortgage product would be because they're changing their mortgage or they're selling without buying something else. So, but I think that the actual most common like reason that people make a change to their mortgage is because they're transacting, right? Canadians move around more than they choose to cancel. So you should be porting in nine out of 10 cases. And, And I think banks are typically relatively lenient with that stuff because it's not like you owe them a ton of money at the end or anything like that. It's just like a bunch of extra paperwork for them, but it means that they get to keep your business. It means that you get to stay as a borrower because the alternative would be you say, Hey, Mr. Bank, I'm going to buy my, I'm going to sell my house and I'm going to go buy another house. And they're like, Oh, well, screw you. You got to pay a penalty. And then you're going to be pissed off and you're probably going to go try and get a mortgage with another lender on the purchase of the next house. So they're usually relatively lenient on the portability side. So. Understanding mortgage portability is a huge asset. Like I've ported several mortgages when I'm buying and selling deals because it's just sim- from a simplicity's sake. You don't have to go and like get underwritten again, you don't have to reapply, you don't have to, and it helps you keep that relationship alive and it helps you keep the predictive predictability of the interest rate. So for people who are transacting a lot, which the average Canadian is, we heard statistically that should be the most common mechanism. The cancellations and stuff, I mean, this is one of the big reasons why even when I was understanding risk of variable rates going up, I still felt that there was an advantage to va- variable rates simply because it was a liquidity preference. And I, was, I prefer to have that liquidity that you could cancel the mortgage because now we're seeing variable above fixed. The economics make sense of locking in. Right, and you have that flexibility. Whereas if if you're in a fixed product, you wouldn't, or the economics wouldn't make sense because you'd be paying that IRD penalty, that would make it not make sense to change your mortgage product. Right?
1: Yeah, totally. And and just a a quick comment on on the transactional side of things. You know, it's unfortunate I think that you know if you're selling your house and you you the, the mortgage becomes you know you almost get lost in it, and and paying a little bit of a penalty to break it when you're profiting hundreds of thousands or whatever it may be, you might get lost in it. So. It really goes back to having financial literacy and really having that good power team. You need that good mortgage broker on your team. few other thoughts here about breaking your mortgage. Do you know any good mortgage brokers, Nick? Not one, to be honest. <laughs> um, present company excluded. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a few other final thoughts here, really know your numbers, know your assets, right? And, and, and know what, what real estate means, Know why you're investing if you you know we always talk about this speculation versus investing something we had in in here was in the show notes was the variable rate charts of the past twenty five years and the fixed rate charts of the past twenty five years, and the performance you know variable always does perform about a full point and a half better over time. It really just depends on what you can do, what you feel comfortable with and and really you know it goes back to if, if you can sleep at night. I'm not going to tell anyone what to do to lock in or to or to port or to break or anything like that. But I can personally say that I will be riding out the waves. I will not be locking in my variable mortgages because at this point, my variables are already up past five. I don't want to be paying this same thing. I don't want to know that I'm paying the same um, percentage point for the next couple of years, even if it is shorter term. And obviously shorter terms, you get higher rates as well. So really goes back. Have the the right members on your team to help you figure this out and go and look at your specific product. Remember that real estate is a long-term game and if you're planning a 5-10 year hold, this shouldn't be a major catalyst in your decision. And yeah, we know it's stressful. Everybody,
0: trust me, we know. But it's about riding it out. Yeah, I think I, I heard there's a common little mantra in the industry that is uh, "marry the asset and date the rate," right? And that's not trying to encourage people to engage in infidelity by any means, but it's uh, it's that you know you, you're you're married to the asset you're buying something that is more of a forever investment. That's the way you should be thinking about real estate, but you're kind of dating the rate. Your relationship with it is transitory, especially in Canada when you're renewing it every five years. Yeah. And now let's make a very clear difference. That little
1: saying goes very well in in my head for investment properties, not so much for your single family home primary residence that is a liability. Remember that. And let's stop it there. We'll leave you on that This again was a a thick one, so we hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or you're nervous or you want to explore breaking your mortgage or converting to a fixed or converting to a variable, reach out to Dan and I, emails in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, guys. We appreciate it.
0: The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037.
1: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.